Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. It's great to see all of you here today. I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine that your decision today to be here in worship. Imagine if you're in a situation where that puts you at risk of maybe getting beat up. Or the fact that you've chosen to come might cause you to lose your job, to lose your possessions, maybe even to have yourself killed. And by coming here today, you made a decision not only to put yourself at risk, but to put your family at risk. And by the fact that you showed up here, you might be putting everybody else at risk as well. Now, aren't you glad you didn't have to deal with that today? But the reality is there are people all over the world today who do have to deal with those very kinds of things. In fact, let me just uh, uh, read you here. And I, I, uh, I put this link to this website. It's on our, our Facebook page with, this, with the, a video of our service today. But countries, 11 countries where there's extreme persecution, Extreme. The very kinds of things I'm talking to you about. You could lose your head, literally, over worshiping the Lord. Uh, this is in the order of uh, the worst on down. So I'll just read you the top 11. They're the, the ones that are listed as extreme persecution. North Korea, uh, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran... India, and Syria. Now, eight out of those 11 are Islamic countries. Um, one of them is communist. One of them is uh, uh, just a dictator who just is very insecure. <laughs> and then uh, the, the last one is in India. It's, it's Hinduism, but it's this religious nationalism, this mindset they have. But people there lose their lives because they're Christians and suffer all sorts of persecution and hardship. This is a real thing that people face. And, and uh, we don't today. Uh, I think sometimes we experience some harassment, right? Harassment because of our beliefs. But most of the time we are not being persecuted, actively persecuted in our country. But the passage of Scripture that we want to look at today, and then uh, next Sunday we'll have a, a Mother's Day sermon, but then two more weeks after that, we're going to look at the, uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians. Now, in Acts chapter 17, we're told that Paul, as he was going about and preaching the gospel, he shows up in Thessalonica. And he likes to go to Thessalonica because there are enough Jewish people there to have a synagogue. And so he goes there and he goes into the synagogue and he begins sharing the fact that their Messiah has come. Jesus is the Messiah and, and what he's done. And so uh, he's preaching this to them and it says he was there for three weeks and people started coming to Christ. And some, some fairly, um, oh, what's the word, but like well-known people, people who had positions that, that others would know, they started coming to Christ. And that there was a whole group of uh, people connected to the Jewish synagogue who did not like this. Okay, at this time, you know, the, the gospel's going to the Jewish people. Paul does that. Some of them come to Christ. Some of them decide that they're opposed to Christ. And so they were opposed to Paul, and they started looking for somebody 
to make pay for this. And they find this guy named Jason and they drag him out and they're going to, uh, you know, beat him and they're looking for others. And so the Bible tells us that, uh, the brethren, the Christians got Paul and Silas and said, you gotta leave. You have to go. And so they headed on down the road to the next town. And, and the accusation, interestingly, that they were had against the Christians, it says, these people who have turned the world upside down have come here preaching this Jesus. But so Paul and Silas on down the road, and they have to leave these brand new Christians, and they have not been there very long. You know, it's at least three weeks, maybe three mo- a few months afterwards, we're not sure. But they had to leave them there. And what they experience is persecution. Significant persecution. So much so that Paul was greatly concerned about them. Now, God did an amazing thing. Because somehow, this young church survived persecution and kept going. In fact, not only did they keep going, they had this great testimony for how faithful they had been to God, how their lives had changed, and the difference that it was making. And Paul says, I go places and I hear about you, what you're doing and what God is doing in your midst. And so he wrote them his first letter, uh, answering some questions that they had, uh, including some questions related to the return of the Lord and what was going to happen in the future. Well, he, uh, a few months later, he gets word that there are more issues in Thessalonica. Even though they're doing really well, they got some issues that they're trying to figure out how to deal with. And so Paul writes his second letter to them. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians. It's page 1359 in the Bible that's in the chairs there. And I've titled the sermon series Forward Motion because uh, they still had questions about the, the uh, Lord's return, the future events, what does that mean, how should we be living now because of it. Um, and, and the idea what Paul tells them in his letters, like, okay, yes, these things are coming, here's what's happening, here's how you need to respond to them. But the whole idea is keep moving forward, keep growing, keep living for the Lord. Uh, in light of all of these truths. And today we're going to see the idea that, in chapter 1, that we are saved for a reason. And it may or may not be the reason that you normally think of. So follow along as I begin reading here. Paul, Silvanus, and that's just another form of the name Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is basically the way Paul opens many of his letters. Then he, he, he continues. He says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So there in verse number three, he says, it is fitting that we give thanks to you for you. Okay? And our, we give thanks because of this. Okay? It's fitting. The way you have lived, it makes sense that we would give thanks for you. And he says, because your faith grows exceedingly. Um. 
Now, the scriptures, you know, they're written, uh, when Paul wrote, he had specific things in mind for the, the readers there. You know, but God has specific things in mind for us for it too, doesn't he? That are consistent with what Paul wrote. But I, I just want to put a challenging thought out there to you. If someone was writing a letter to you today because of what they're hearing about how you're living, would they write that your faith is growing exceedingly? I got a feeling that, you know, we, we, uh, a lot of us, maybe most of us, we, we believe God and we, we do live by faith in some ways because we've chosen to, you know, do what God says and trust Him for the outcome. But I think it's easy for us to get into the pattern of that's just what we do. And that's, that's not wrong. That's good. But I gotta believe that knowing what God is like, knowing the magnitude of the mission that he's given us, that there's room for our faith to grow. Are you with me on that? Not only is there room for it to grow, there's room for it to grow exceedingly. What would it take for your faith to start growing exceedingly? What would you have to do? You know, I can't but think we'd have to think a little bit harder about our lives about how we're living and what does God want us to do and what are our motives for all those things. And we would have to step out of our comfort zone. I mean, think back on your life before you became a believer. Think back on this. Before you became a follower of Christ or maybe before you got serious about it. Is your life better today than it was then? For the most part, right? It works that way in America, <laughs> right? Because we, we stop doing as many, all those things that were hurting us and, and we start doing some good things and put some things in place and begin living by some principles that work because God, who knows all things, told us to do them and we do them. And man, life just gets comfortable. I'm not saying there's never any hardship. Hardships come. But overall, right, our lives, and we work hard to keep our lives comfortable. Anybody besides me say, yeah, that's true? All right. So if we are going to have our faith growing exceedingly, we're going to have to make some decisions about stepping out and actually following God more faithfully, more radically, to a greater extent, taking serious the commands that he's given us, right? And uh, we'll talk about some other things later that may help to, with your thinking on that. So your faith grows exceedingly. The love of every one of you all abounds toward each other in verse 3. The love, he hears that your love is abounding. Do you feel like we love each other as a church? Do you? I mean, I do. I, I experience that. I, I fellowship with you. I see you, you know, sometimes outside of here and more often here. And I do have that sense. But... Once again, someone watching, observing, would they say that our love is abounding? What's abounding mean? It means overflow, right? Wow, that's bigger than you would expect. That's more than I knew. It's abounding. What would it take for us to love each other that way? One of the things I think would take would, would us on purpose getting more involved with each other in our lives more involved serving the Lord together. Um, and once again, I think before we're done, we'll, we'll have some challenges about this. So, 
But that's a good reputation. They have faith that's growing exceedingly. Their love is abounding for each other. And then the next verse, that they have this patience and faith. And this patience, we tend to think of patience as all putting up and waiting. But this word patience means, yes, it is waiting on the Lord, but it's enduring. You keep waiting on the Lord. It's, this is the opposite of saying, okay, I've waited long enough, right? Throw up your hand and say, what's the point? I'm not going to do it. No, this patient is an enduring that they keep doing it. When is their persecution going to end? They don't know. And so they endure it patiently. And how do they do it? Again, by faith, by trusting God, by making a decision right now to do what God said, even though it may bring more persecution. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to, I'm going to just be patient. I'm going to endure, do the things that He's told me to do, no matter what it looks like or means in my life. And then persecutions and tribulations, troubles that just come with that. All right, so let's continue reading. Verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Say, so I read, I read that and I said, I think I better read that again. <laughs> I read it again. I said, okay, now what does this mean? I got to explain this to other people. What does this mean? And if you, if you look at it for a little while and read what comes after, it starts to make sense. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It isn't, I mean, we would think, oh, those people who are suffering, they're the ones being judged. That would be our natural inclination, right? The ones that the bad things are happening to, see, they're experiencing God's judgment. It's not what he's saying. He's saying the way you're living and what you're going through and your faithfulness in it is evidence that when God judges the world, that he's right to do so. Okay? Because how does the world treat Christians? The people in the world who want no nothing to do with God, how do they treat Christians? Right? And so he says there's it's just a huge difference between you Thess- the way you Thessalonians are living and the way the people who don't want to know God are living, that it's going to be evident that God's judgment is right. It's right. Because there's a huge difference. Now, we'll see that more in just a moment. But think about this. So we're saying there's this huge difference. You can see the people who have come to know God and how they're living in their lives and those who've said no to God and how they're living their lives. And that that's evidence that God's judgment is right. What if the way you're living your life or the way I'm living my life isn't very different? Wow, that's a problem, isn't it? It's not the way it ought to be. There ought to be a clear difference the way we live because we are Christians. So, anyway, so this is manifest evidence, the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6, he continues, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, to repay with troubles those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And so again, he says, it's a righteous thing. You know, when we... um Look around the world, if you look at persecution, you look at the things that happen to people because they follow Christ. Is that right for that to happen? It's not a trick question. Is that right for that to happen? It is not right. It is terrible. I mean, think about, this goes back clear to the Son of God. Was it right for Him to have to die for our sins? No. 
what he did. But so it's not right either that they be treated this way. And yet people, sometimes God miraculously de- delivers people, but you understand in, in areas where persecution is going on, more often than not, God does not deliver people who are being persecuted. But there's coming a day when he will balance the scales. There's coming a day when justice will be done. And, you know, we need to live that way because Christians, especially I think in our country, we get so wrapped up in thinking that somehow the things that are not right in our country, that, that you know, we need to yell and scream about them and demand our rights and try to fix those things. And, and I'm not opposed to, to, to being involved, but you understand that this world, the natural world, is never going to be on God's side. Understand that? Never going to. We need to make sure we're living right and trust in God and know that God will make it right. There's coming a time when God will balance those scales. Justice will be done. So let's continue. And he goes and describes when the Lord returns what happens. Verse 8, he says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes. And we'll pick up there in just a moment. Now, as a Christian, well, let me back up. Let's talk about it. If you're talking to your children or your grandchildren or, or someone like that, and they wanted revenge on somebody, what would you tell them? Is that a good thing? Yeah, go for it, kid, man. You know, no, we would say don't revenge. And yet, the Bible is very clear that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We aren't the ones who need to be seeking revenge, but God will avenge wrongdoing. He is a holy God. He is, He is so holy that if He had not loved us, He would wipe us off the face of the earth. He's so holy that his son had to die for us. But for those who reject that, vengeance is coming. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? It's a hard thing to think about it because, you know, I think one of the reasons this is hard for me to think about is because I deserve the vengeance. Right? I deserve it, but I'm not getting it because of Jesus. So let's look here and see this idea. Who's getting this vengeance? Those who do not know God. We say, well, that's not good. That's not fair. But I tell you what, Scripture is very clear that God has revealed himself enough in this world that people can know that he exists. They can know that he's powerful and they can know that they, they need to know him more. And, and uh, I am just convinced based on what I read in the Scripture and what I know of God that anybody who responds to God anywhere with God Look, I'm messed up, but I, I, I want to know you. I, I need that God moves heaven and earth to get someone there with the gospel. Right? And so, uh, those who don't know God who are getting avenged here are those who have said no to God. Romans chapter one talks about this. And then he says, those who do not obey the gospel. That's a different terminology than we usually use, isn't it? Obey the gospel. What do you mean? I thought we're saved by grace through faith. You are. John chapter 6, the people ask Jesus, what do we need to do to work the works of God? Okay, back up. Are we saved by works? Are we? 
Yeah, I want yeah, you guys to be definite on that. For by grace are you saved through faith, right? Not of works. And so they say, what should we do to work the works of God? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, you got it all wrong. But no, what he says is, here's the works of God that you believe. So when you find yourself, I'm in opposition to God, I'm a sinner, I'm in trouble for that, I deserve hell for that. And God says, well, here's what you need to do. You need to acknowledge that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and believe Jesus. We said it was believe and put your faith in Jesus. Receive Jesus by faith. How do you obey him? By doing what? Receiving Jesus by faith. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about people here who heard the gospel, had the opportunity to respond to the gospel, but said no to God. They did not obey the gospel. They refused to believe. And then verse 9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction. This is an ongoing thing. Two things, from the presence of the Lord. You know, I, I just got to think that one of the things that's going to make hell hell is that when God somehow rather veils his presence from them. You know, we go through life and whether we're aware of God's presence or not, all consciously aware, it's there, isn't it? But what if God were to somehow rather shut you off from that? And from the glory of his power, not on a ghost. So, verse 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints... Who's a saint? Any saints here today? How many saints? Yeah, we're not talking about, yeah, I'm this wonderful person. We're talking about, I've, I've received Jesus as Savior. He's made me holy inside, right? Okay, that's right. So when he comes to be glorified in us, when he shows up, we're going to glorify him and to be admired. And this word admired uh, can also be translated marveled at or wondered at among all those who believe. Because our testimony among you is believe. You believe the gospel. But when Jesus comes, we're going to be overwhelmed, like, wow. More than we know. Then verse 11, he says, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. So let's stop right there. What I want to focus in on today, look back in verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, And verse 11, therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this this, uh, calling. Counted worthy. Now, God is not talking here about us somehow finally measuring up. If you want to live a miserable life, live it trying to measure up. Trying to measure up to God. Trying to measure up to everybody's expectations. Always trying to measure up. That's not what God is talking about when he says counted worthy. Okay? Um, yeah, it isn't at all. So I want you to understand something. That if it was left to us and God never did anything in our lives, we would not be worthy, would we? For all have sinned. How many? For all have sinned. And what? Come short. Have not measured up. We have not measured up. And this is where the good news really comes in because God sent His Son in the world and He did measure up. 
Jesus lived this perfect, holy, sinless life, the Son of God, as a human being. And so he is the one who is worthy. Revelation describes him this way, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Go ahead and go to that if you would. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, right? He is the one who is worthy. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says that God, for he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We weren't worthy. He was. And he is what? Made a way for us to be worthy. And First Peter, he says it like this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just, the worthy one, for the unjust, the unworthy. Jesus, the just and worthy one, for us the unjust, unworthy ones. He suffered for our sins that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive again by the Spirit. But do you see how that... that um, Left to ourselves, we are not worthy. But he has what? Declared us worthy because of what Jesus did for us. That moment when we receive Christ as Savior, he declares us worthy. Now, I had an uncle who was uh, one of the commissioners of the city of San Francisco for a lot of years. And um, so he went and visited him with my family, my Uncle Jack, and he took us down under the city. You know, because there's cable cars in San Francisco, and he took us down under there and walked us through and showed us the whole system and explained how it goes. Now, do you think that anybody can just walk down there? No, you have no right to be down there. But my Uncle Jack had the authority had the right, and he said, we had the right. And so it is with God. He has declared us worthy. We are not worthy. But because of our relationship with him, he who is worthy has declared us worthy and made us worthy. And uh, what I don't want you to go away with today is thinking, oh, I'm unworthy. The only way you're unworthy today, in a sense, is if you don't know Jesus as Savior. Because you're still on your own. But man, once you receive Jesus as Savior, it isn't, oh, I'm still unworthy, but somehow I'm making it to heaven. No, it's what? I am worthy. Because of what Jesus did, but I am now worthy. Can you say that with me? I am now worthy. I am now worthy. Because He's changed you. He has made you worthy deep down inside. And so because Jesus was counted worthy for us, and when we receive Jesus as Savior, we are united with Him. We are now made worthy as well. We're declared worthy by Him. See, God is the one who assigns value and evaluates worthiness. He's the one who gets to decide what's valuable and what's worthy. And He valued us enough that He sent His own Son into the world, didn't He? How high did He value you? I mean, more than you understand, he valued you. And, and how high did he value his son Jesus? So much that he said, my son's death is sufficient payment for the sins of everybody in the whole world who has ever lived or ever will live. That's how valuable my son is. And that's what he did for us. Not only that, he evaluates worthiness. 
So that's what we see here. In both those verses, it says that God would count you worthy. That God would consider you worthy. But we know he already did when it comes to salvation, right? So let's talk about uh, he's determined that we are worth loving, worth saving, worth being redeemed. But what does it mean then when we talk about am I living worthy? Because that's really what they're talking about here. How are you living your life? Are you living a life worthy of what the Lord has done for you? Well, we've got to figure out what does the word mean, right? What does this word worthy or worthiness mean? Well, it very simply, the word that's translated means comparable to or suitable. And it's actually the same word we saw back in verse 3 when it says it's fitting for us to give thanks. It, it, it makes sense because your life and our thanksgiving match. And so... Um, really what this idea of worthy means when you're measuring worthiness, it means that it matches in significance. It matches in significance. And so the idea is here's, here's, uh, what has been done in your life and here's how you're living. Do they match? Okay. Let me give you, let's think of it this way. So you ever seen the scales of justice, the picture, right? Or the scales, you know, they used to be balancing scales where you'd put a weight on one side and then measure on the other side and compare. Well, that's what's going on here. It's, okay, Jesus has saved you. He has forgiven every sin. He has given you a new nature. He's come to live within you. He has gifted you. He watches over your life and his spirit in you will lead you. All of these things. Does your life match that in significance? Am I losing you? In other words, our lives ought to be lived in a way that's consistent with what Jesus has done for us and, and what he has called us to do. Uh, so we can be counted worthy when our lives match what God has saved us for. We're saved for a reason. Now think about this. Um, <laughs> athletes, pro-athletes. You know, they, they, say a free agent and they, they get a free agent and they pay him a hundred million dollars to play for the next five years, four years, three years, whatever, right? Okay. So you know that the, the coach and the ownership, here's how much we have paid you. What are they looking for? The performance. Now you and I think could argue that nothing's, no throwing the ball around is worth that. But that's in, in the light of the market. That's what they're going to do, right? And if it doesn't match, they're going to trade you. But the idea is they expect it to match. Well, God has done something for us. Our lives should match it. We should be taking our lives that seriously with him. And so the question for us today is, does my life match the significance of what God has done for me and what he has called me to do as a Christian? Here's what he's done. Does my life really match. And, and, and this, this answer, you say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person and I don't really do hardly much bad stuff and all that. That doesn't match. That's, that's not significant. I mean, it's important. And we should be good people and we should, but that's not what God is talking about here. Think about what the Thessalonians are doing. Right? Every day of their life, they were having to make a decision. Am I going to live for the Lord or not? And it's going to cost me something if I do. How significant is that? Uh, so the thought is this. If I'm really saved, 
If I'm really saved, okay? In other words, I really have received Christ as Savior, and he's come and done all those things for me that he says he does. And if I'm really supposed to love him, and by loving him, do what he says, if I'm really supposed to love you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm supposed to do that. If I'm really supposed to be a witness to the world and the people around me, I'm supposed to be doing that. I'm supposed to be using my talents and and my spiritual gifts in serving the Lord and accomplishing his purposes. If that's the way I'm supposed to live... Am I? You understand that? And my challenge, I think, to most of us today is that, well, I, I gotta be careful, I, but I'm just saying, I think we have to, there's an inertia that keeps us from living that way. And we need to purposefully make decisions to live like Jesus said we're supposed to live. Live lives that are significant, lives that match the things he's talking about, because you understand that this is what you were saved for. He didn't save you so that you could have a pleasant life. And tell you what, the blessings of God are often very pleasant. And he does bless us, but he didn't save you so you could be happy. You will be happy. He didn't save you so you could live the good life. He saved you so you could devote your entire life to serving him and doing the things that he wants you to do. That's what he saved you for. And in the long run, that will be the greatest blessing to you. So think about this. What are you doing in your life? You know, when you think about maybe you have God-given talents, and you do. I know, but you have, some of you, I know your talents, right? Are, Are you using those for the Lord? Or are you doing other things for them, with them? How about your finances? Are, are you, are you working hard to get ahead financially? Good thing, very wise thing. Are you working ahead to get ahead financially so that you can live the good life when you retire? I want to challenge you. Stop it. You know, your finances, work your finances and get your finances such a way so that you can serve God some way. You know, why don't you think about instead of I'm going to retire and live the good life, why don't you think I'm going to retire and then I'm going to have more time to serve the Lord in some way. See, because... I want to be counted worthy. My, my, my life to match what he's done for me. Uh, you, you know, your relationship with your church. I mean, do you come to church because, you know, you, you like it, uh, you enjoy it, you have your friends here? Or do you come to church because there's this God who is so awesome that we need to worship together and we need to get together and encourage each other so we can go out from here and live the life that God has called us to live? You see, I don't think we're often thinking about how's my life going to measure up? And not measure up to earn, you know what I'm talking about, right? To match what God has done for me. And when you don't do this, you, you just waste a lot of stuff. Let me challenge you. Don't live little lives. Anything, so here's, here's this weightiness of what God has done for us. All these things we've already talked about. And you have these little things in your life. I'm living my life this. Don't live that way. Start living like someone who's been redeemed and purchased to bring God glory and to accomplish His purposes and to be all those things that He made you to be. That that is what your life is about. Don't live little lives. Live big lives that are worthy of God's calling. Big lives. Step out in faith. Let you Do something that's going to make your faith grow. Do something that's going to make you have to love more or you're going to not like it. (laughs) 
so many more things we could talk about, but let me just say, um, God didn't just call you out of things. You know, we think that we got saved. Oh, yeah, okay, I got to stop that. I, I called, thankfully, he called me out of those things. He also called you to things. He called you to live your life for him. And we need people who will live big lives for Jesus, who will devote their life to truly significant things. We don't need more nice people. I like nice people. <laughs> I hope you're nice to me. I'm going to try to be nice to you. But we don't need more nice people. We need people who will say to God, God, where in this world do you want me to go to serve you? Do you want me here or do you want me someplace else? I'm willing. I'm ready. He wants you to live like that. That's what we need. We need people who will say, God, do you want me in some kind of full-time ministry? Whatever, assisting, working, or do you want me to stick with this career? Okay, Lord, what career do you want me to be in? And how do you want me to honor and glorify you in this career? With these possessions. It's all about you. It's no longer just about me and what I want. That's a little life. That's insignificant compared to what Christ has done for you. Um, so I really want to challenge you. You go home this week. I want you to think, would you have a conversation with God and say, okay, God, you know, I've been living and I think I've been trying to live right, but you know what, God, I'm stepping back from this and I want to know what do you want me to do with my life? Are you willing to do that? God, what do you want to do with my life? And if it isn't what I'm doing now, show me, help me change, whatever, it's, you know. Guess what? Your faith might grow exceedingly. Right? What do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do in my work? What do you want me to do in my family? Do you want me to move? Do you want me to stay? How do you, just whatever. Would you go home and do that this week and, and say, God, don't let up on me. Keep after me about this. And I just tell you, I think if all of us in here did this, what could God do with us? It's beyond our, it's exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. That's what he could do through. You see, you've been saved for a reason. Saved for a reason that your life would match what God has done for you. Um, you know, thinking about what you're talking about, uh, a couple weeks ago I felt really convicted just to to come up and pray and talk to God. Um, and right along with what you're saying, um, just living worthy of what God is calling us to, right? Um, so that verse that you ended with, if you read a little more, it says, may he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Right. Um, and so I, I have a huge fear of what other people think of me and, and what I say or do, uh, even, even here, even this. And I, I, I want to pray about that for myself, but also for us, because God will give us the power to do what He's calling us to do. Um, so, yeah, thank I'll you. Just, Let me, I pray? Real quick, I, He did say I was going to go back, but I'd run out of time. But He does say that it is when we do this that we will experience the, His good pleasure and all His good works and His power and His faith, and He will be glorified in us and in our lives. And uh, the challenge I'm making to you is a challenge that my youngest daughter has challenged me with. Without even this, I don't know if she's done it on purpose or not. But she says, why would I want to waste my life on doing little stuff? I want to, I want to take the gospel to North Korea. 
Or she's thinking, no, maybe I want to go to a Muslim country or whatever. She says, we need to do that. And, and someone asks her, well, you know, aren't your parents afraid that if you go? She says, if I die serving God, that's much better than living a little life that doesn't, isn't worthy. So come on up here, Dan. And yeah, why don't you close us in prayer, okay? Here we go, God. I believe you are who you say you are, and your son was real, and he died for me, for us, and I, I know that you have forgiven me, and I praise you for that, and I thank you for even just a little bit of courage to, to say something when it's hard. God, we, we need you to be able to help us to follow you, and God, please give us that that strength, that courage, and please bring us closer to you. Uh, God, I know, I, I don't even know exactly what you want me to say, but I praise you, and uh, God, please fill us with your spirit. Please bring us together to seek you, as you say, your house is a house of prayer. Um, please shut down our enemy because he's real and pulling us away from you. And as we've been challenged today, please call us to live lives worthy of your son and your grace. God, you, you alone are our creator, our father, and our shepherd, and our judge. We need you. In, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, thank you. Let's go live it, huh? Let's go live it. Thank you.